Welcome to The Lit Fantastic, a show about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken, and today we're speaking with the poet P.J. Jarrett. P.J. is a writer and software developer in Nashville, Tennessee. Her work has been published or forthcoming in Poetry, African American Review, Boston Review, Beloit Poetry Journal, Kaolu Diagram, Third Toast, and many, many more. She is the author of a debut collection, Ain't No Grave, which was published by New Issues Press in 2013, as well as her second collection, Zion, which won the Crab Orchard Open Competition and was published by the Southern Illinois University Press in the fall of 2014. Part of the reason why I wanted to do this interview with TJ was because both of us come from a background as programmers and then also found ourselves writing poetry. In this conversation, we end up talking about her particular mixture of obsessions. She's obsessed with restoring hardwood floors, with the idea and the experience of lived space and architecture, and the ways in which this feeds into our understanding of language, whether it is the languages we use to communicate one with another as human beings, or the languages we engage with as programmers to communicate and transform what we understand from machines. I mean, it's well past normal, like, oh, wow, that was a very satisfying thing. It's like I actually go to friends' houses to, like, fix their floors. It's that and, like, tile, because I just, yeah, tile and grout, it drives me nuts. Okay, so this is not just merely refinishing your own floors. You actually, oh, no. you actually no, no. go out and seek it's out opportunities. Like I house sit, and people know that if I, if like I actually have a friend who I think she plans to have her floors in horrible shape because she knows I can't take it. And then you'll arrive, and you'll you'll somehow magically transform their floors into this uh, mm-hmm. beautiful, pristine wood finished floor. Yep. Wow. So how did this start? I mean, this is one day you wake up and you decide, I love finished wood floors and I'm going I, to... I love wood floors in general. I mean, like everyone, I mean, who doesn't? I mean, they're beautiful mm. and, you know, it's, and when they're clean, they're awesome. Um, I don't know. I think it's the ritual of doing it. It's the whole, like, because it, it's, it's a multi-layered process. Like, mm. it depends on, like, how the floor is finished, what you get to, you know, what you get to, like, take up dirt off of it. If you need to, like, actually, like, sand and refinish it if it's that bad there are steps and they are pretty they're pretty hard and fast steps so you don't have to really think about it you just kind of go through the motions of doing it Mm -hmm. so so i mean is there a particular like floor you go back to you think this is where i got my start this is what i started on and i just kind of fell in love with this process or did you kind of begrudgingly fall into this and then discover a love for it later there are ironies. I hate Home Depot. Like I absolutely in my soul hate it. And so anytime I'm in there, something has happened. But I, yeah, I had to refinish some floors when I lived in Boston um, because they were awful and they were, I just had, could not live with them anymore. And yeah, someone, I, it was, I was having a building refin, like refurbished. I was working for a company and we we're having a building refurbished and I complained to the general contractor and he's like, well, I don't have anyone to give to you to do it, but like, here's my 175. I'm going to give you some steps and some chemicals. You knock yourself out. Well, um, hopefully not literally. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I kind of, because that's like a really, like that that machine is kind of weird because it, <laughs> it scrubs. And so like as it's scrubbing, it kind of moves and it moves. If you don't know how to drive it, it moves quite violently and you can like take out a wall with it. Um, so you can finish yeah. the floors and take out the walls with the same yep, machine. Yep. You certainly can. Yeah. <laughs> So, but so yeah, no, he walked me through it. He walked mm. me through how to do it. And I was like, well, that's pretty awesome. And I was felt really satisfied and happy. And so, yeah, no, I was very, I was like, wow, that's a home project that actually worked. And so then I go from that to, yeah. So do you, know that I will. Yeah. Do you actually own your own machine for doing this? Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> well, that's investment. That's uh... it's investment. No, no, it's bad. It's, it's not good. It is not healthy. I don't do it. Like I, it's not like it's something it's like it's like a quarterly project mm-hmm. and then i'll begrudge it and like wait until i actually you know because they're hardware towards my house too so i'm like i'm like oh mm-hmm. and then i'll just do it what's what do but you it's find like a week Oops. yeah it's like if i'm going room to room it's like i'll do like one room a night because i obviously i have other things to do but yeah 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 so what do you find most satisfying about this um it's the removal of layers mm-hmm there's like there's like the layer of dirt if you actually have to like remove I don't know a layer of it's finding what's underneath and so like if you want to change the color of the floor you're you know you're actually gonna have to sand it and you have to you know you start out with a low grit and work your way to a higher grit and then mm-hmm. you actually like carpet pad on the new stain um, and then lay the poly on top of it um, it's it's that it's the removal of layers and then applying layers on top. Um, removing the old and bringing out the new. So, yeah, it's, I would probably say that's possibly, there's some metaphor in there about my life. I'm not quite exactly sure what that is, but yeah. Well, I I mean, it sounds to me like the way you describe it is partly like in the vein of art restoration, like the sense that there is something Mm -hmm. to be rescued or to be restored or or kind of brought to light that's been lost. But then there's also a part of it that feels a little bit like um, a sculpture, which is also, you know, in the process of transforming something. You see the raw material and you see what could it become with this, you know, application of technique, this this use exactly. of, of, you know, this knowledge and these tools. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. so do you find yourself then... Um, you know, do you look back over sort of your your history of working on these different floors, and and thinking of particular homes or particular floors that you feel satisfied, really like proud of the accomplishment of what you did to restore? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I have a friend of mine who has dogs who have just like just destroyed her floor. Um, but she's got three of them. They're big dogs. That's what they do. And I don't know where she was or she was on vacation somewhere. And, like, I actually had to text her in the middle of the night after I finally got the finish down. I'm like, this is the last time you'll ever see it this good. Mm-hmm. I think you need a picture of this. So what, what's, the, I mean, what's the oldest floor you restored then? It's probably my first one. It was, um, it's an old pine. And I had this house, I was living in this house that was like 108 years old. Mm-hmm. But I had no idea what I was in for. It was the most complicated, <laughs> awful, horrible thing I'd ever done. Um... Because I started thinking that, okay, maybe it's just, you know, maybe there's just like a, you know, there's a finish on it and I just need to clean off the finish. No, it was actually like living in the house and sanding and refinishing. Um, and then somehow trying, making sure that I was done before my landlord got back to look at it. Because I was like, oh, I'm going to do this little part. This is horrible. 
and it was so bad Mm -hmm. that I was, I had to get it done. So I was like going to work, then going to bed at three in the morning, (laughs) having done one room and then going to the other one. It was awful. Absolutely awful. Um, but I did it in like a period of a couple, like it was including that I probably did it in like a week. Mm-hmm. It was a week with like, you know, it's like 1500 square feet and having to sleep at a friend's house because you can't sleep while you have like, while you're putting like, while you're laying down finish, you can't sleep in that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I've kind of fallen in love with the, the finished wood floor, really well polished floor. Um, mm-hmm. When I was living in Los Angeles in Koreatown, there was this one apartment I was in that was a 1930s former hotel. And it had this like 10 foot ceiling room um, with the original hardwood floors. Somehow the previous tenant had lived there the entire time through all like she had been this older lady that had been there forever and ever and ever. And so she had lived through the entire period in the 60s, I mean, in the 70s and 80s when someone thought she, it would be brilliant to, to carpet like, all over carpet everything. Carpet on top? There was never oh. carpet on top of it. So it was nice. the original gorgeous hardwood floors. I walked into it uh, when I was looking for apartments, and that was the first thing I noticed was the color and sort of the the character of the floor. Um, and I fell in love. I thought, this this is the the place I have to live. But yeah, and, and this weekend I was actually staying at a another a friend's house who's restored a 1915 uh, uh, home, you know, out on the, the coast of Oregon. And um, again, sort of the original, uh, both the hardwood floors, but then also there's a, I can't remember the name of it. Um, it's not linoleum, but it's something earlier, like the earliest form of linoleum, where you actually paint the yeah. design on top of it. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Yeah. I forget the name of it. It's like I'm Tico. I forget what it's called. But yeah, so when yeah. they they were in the process of restoring their their home, they discovered like um, each of the bedrooms had been done like that, and there were these amazing patterns that got revealed. Oh, nice. So that excitement of like, wow, look at look at this this hidden treasure that's been like lying here for for decades, and no one's. And noticed. it's so strange to actually, you know, it's there's a part of me that always looks down a little bit that I just want to see like what, what kind of, you know, what are we walking on? Like what's, you know, what's beneath us? Is that, you know, it's like, how important is that? Just, you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting how we're like excited about these, like these literally something you're literally going to walk on. Yeah. I think what's really interesting to me about hardwood floors too, is um, they're not perfect. They're not pristine. They're, they're, Mm -hmm. It, they they are sort of the engraved history of the previous tenants. You know, you see like every every moment that someone dropped a cigarette and burned a spot on the floor. Every time someone, yeah. you know, um, scraped you know a heavy piece of furniture across the floor, and then it's been filled in. You know, the the finish has filled it in, and now it's you know now it takes on a new mark, a new tattoo, a new new part of the story is on the floor. Um, exactly. And it's it's interesting how it becomes a thing of beauty, whereas if that same thing happened to you know your linoleum floor, you would say, oh no, we've got to replace the whole thing. Well, or you just get another square and you replace that. Square. Well, you, that's true. You I, just drop it. Lots of you know, it's like or if like you have something happen to carpet, you can just cut out a little piece and then replace it from a donor piece somewhere in your closet and put the you know and yeah. move on with your life. 
there are a lot of steps with like actually even if someone you know someone burned the floor depending on how you know how deep that burn is you can you know you can actually get it out you know provided you it's like it's not so deep that you can't level it with the rest or feather it out with the rest of the floor yeah it's it's um I, I also find that it's really interesting to me how, and this is something I admire about people. There are some people who are really good at building spaces for people to move through mm-hmm. um, in a way that I am not really, I'm, I'm not that person. I, like, I, I'm comfortable. I like to be comfortable, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a builder of spaces for people to inhabit. I kind of think of my poems to do more of that work. And I think it's a friend of mine who um, she does restaurants. Mm-hmm. And so every restaurant has to be this space that's comfortable and people want to spend time there and they want to eat and share time with their friends. And a lot of thought goes into that, including what the flooring looks like, what the crown molding looks like, what the ceiling's going to look like. Um, and I'm fascinated by people who are knowledgeable and understand those things mm. that every space is built for someone to inhabit it and not just to stand back and admire. Yeah. That's, it's fascinating to me, but so I'm really, mine's really specifically, <laughs> specifically love hardwoods, but yeah. Um, yeah. So this idea of like, uh, you know, the construction of a space that we inhabit, you know, years ago I read like uh, a book called, um, Oh, I remember what it was. It was the the house and the temple. That's what it was, and it, okay. it, it it basically it's an architectural book that is also a literary book and also a philosophical book about like how space is constructed, and different spaces constructed, and you know how um, how different architectural elements you know create different moods or different atmospheres. Uh, so if you want some place to feel like it's a sacred space then you would use these type of elements. You would create like a sense of loftiness or you might um, add, you know, some other element that like brings in more light or more more sense of like a vastness to it. So it's just really interesting to me like what different things are done. You know, and, and you go into like other cultures, that sense of how a space is constructed um, takes on some really deeply spiritual significance. The... Um, in Chinese culture, for instance, you know, with the whole philosophy of feng shui, which is about, I mean, literally it means wind and water and has to do with how energy moves through a space and how we move through a space. And so there's definitely a difference between like a room or a home that's been designed um, with the, the sense of like how energy or how people pass through that space with ease or are interrupted and disrupted as they move through a space. But yeah, so I, I find like that that's a deeply interesting subject to, to explore that that sense of space, the sense of the live spaces we, we occupy. And actually I was, I was thinking about that and particularly in terms of poems, I spend a lot of time, if you think about the poetic line as, um, as a unit of measure of dimension to a poem i always think of how do i interrupt it Mm -hmm. um what kind of velocity will i bring to each line um i use a lot of caesuras to interrupt the rhythm Mm -hmm. um when you clearly you think that this unit is going to be the same one to the other to the other and they're not Mm -hmm. um and i use them intentionally 
to stop that, to stop that movement in the space. Um, I think of poetry architecturally, very, very architecturally when it comes to things like that, because I think that, you know, there's different kinds of the different kinds of space um, and things that one would take for granted, like the line, for example, like, you know, or, um, or the stanza for that matter, you know, kind of in this, um, and I too am swept up in like the, you know, the world of the couplet lately, mm. but I, I find, you know, I find quartets to be quite stodgy, um, big, huge kind of lunks of space to move through where I find couplets a lot faster to move through. But yeah, I think it's, and maybe, maybe the impulse to like love cleaning floor, maybe that's, I mean, it comes from that same thing of the, you know, the uncovering and the unfurling. I don't know. Well, I, I think there is some, you know, as we've been talking, I've been thinking about that in terms of like, I think what what you're talking about, about like the the restoring of these floors, the excavation or restoration or revelation of what's there, that feels very much like a discussion of revision, you know, of, of like what we do to the draft yeah. of the poem to, to try to discover what's really there. We look at the raw material and we see the shape of it and we think... I think I know what's underneath this. I just have to work at it with the right procedure, with the right process, and I can find what's lurking beneath there. And also what's very interesting is like wood floors and brand new wood floors are quite not interesting. Um, It takes a while for, depending on the type of stain you have, to really settle into the pores of it and to really tell you what color it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, you have to literally, it has to be lived in for a second for it to actually get its character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not even interested in, you know, I'm not interested. I mean, you can clean things. I mean, you clean it fine, whatever, but it's not, I don't find it to be an interesting project until it's something that needs like, that actually needs help. Mm-hmm. Um, and to come back to what it's supposed to be. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think it has a little bit to, maybe a lot to do with imperfection, you know. Yeah. There's something that we're drawn to, to to work over something that feels imperfect or raw or rough in some way. Um, Even, you know, that it, maybe it's not entirely broken, but there's something that needs work. Um, Mm -hmm. Something that feels like it doesn't require us doesn't really that to me feels boring right i i do think yeah. too there there's like a, a an interesting parallel too with um uh, with jade with, with uh you know something my my uncle taught me one of my uncles in in taiwan um mm-hmm. he gave me two pieces of jade he gave me a, a a new newly carved piece of jade and then he gave me something that um he had owned for a very very long time and the new piece of jade, all the lines are very crisp. Everything is sharp. Everything, you know, it's clearly defined. And yet it feels kind of soulless, I guess. The The old piece of jade um, is worn smooth. And it actually, there's actually a Chinese idiom about, literally the idiom for referring to uh, wasting time or idling or like just doing nothing is mm-hmm. moyu or to rub jade. And literally that's what people would do is they'd sit around with a piece of jade in their hand and they would rub it in their hands 
And over years of doing that, it would break down the hard lines on the jade and make huh. it smoother and smoother. But also the oils in the hand would change the color of the jade. And a piece of old jade is not only beautiful, but it's the product of like decades of contact with the human being. Well, I, I think it's, my grandmother always had this, um, she would always talk about how a place remembers a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and how the body itself does, in fact, mark the spaces that it inhabits. Because you think that suddenly, you know, it's like you walk into a house that's empty, that there's, you know, she had an absolute sense. And it's not it's not in the sense of ghosts, but maybe a little bit in the sense mm. of ghosts. But in the sense of the space that people live through can be marked by their emotions, by, you know, things that happen and the space itself remembers the things that happen there. Um, and there are, you know, ordinary sacred places. And I, in, in the context she was speaking about it, she was speaking about lynching. Um, mm. Every lynching tree remembers its place, but that in the sense of, you know, in the sense of trauma and mm. trauma to a place, there's also a there's sense of joy to a place in her house that she always wanted to have the, the, the actual, the bricks should know that they were happy in that space. Mm. Um, and you know, again, it's like a house is like everything else. A house is like, you know, it's, it's in contact with your body as you like, you know, pad to the kitchen in the middle of the night or, mm -hmm. and yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinates me. And, and maybe that's why I like, I like wood just because it's a, it's a natural, it's a natural material. And it's, it's going to be around, it's going to endure for a second but it had endured before that for many, many years before it becomes, you know, before it comes your floor too. So, yeah. That, that, that's an interesting point. I, you know, sometimes we forget about that, that the, the wood that we see, you know, really this is its second or third life. Exactly. You know, it, it's, it's been other things. It's mm -hmm. been a tree and then it's been, you know, an unshaped board and mm -hmm. then it finds a place in our home. In some some homes, the remains wood. the remains of a, a previous home or a previous piece of furniture. Like actually, I was just thinking of the the Cannon exhibit. All the all the boxes that we use and uh, a lot of the elements that we use in our exhibit are all from recovered wood. Um, yeah. And there's like a lot of pieces that come from an old paddle boat. So, you know, it's, it's lived now three lives at least, you know, <laughs> um, it's been exactly. a tree, it's been yeah. a paddle boat board and it's, you know, and now it's uh, shelves and boxes. And uh, so it's interesting, yeah, how that plays out. You know, the, the other thing we were talking about this and the idea that the place remembers, you know, the people and the things that happened there. There's something that our, our good ancestor, both of us being uh, programmers, our good mm -hmm. ancestor Charles Babbage once said in uh, his Ninth Bridgewater Treatise, which is his foray into uh, theology, actually. Um, oh. he, says, he says this really interesting thing. He says that every, every word and every action that we perform or that we utter, is the vibrations of it are recorded forever in the particles of the air. And if we had a machine or a technology advanced enough, we could replay everything that had ever been said and ever been done. And he says, it will be out of the very particles of the air that will form the book of remembrance from which we will be judged. 
Wow. That's stimulating and depressing. Yes, yes. Well, he then takes this further, and it, it's interesting. He uses this as, as part of his condemnation of, of slavery. And um, in one of his footnotes, and he talks about sort of the ways in which the slavers would throw uh, their cargo, you know, the, the actual people into the, into the waves rather than be caught for illegal yes. trafficking. And he says, you know, in some final day, it's their words, every particle of the air will, and every particle of the ocean will scream out against these people in judgment. Um, but yeah, so this idea of like the, you know, spaces remembering everything that has been said and done, it's a really powerful idea. I, I you know, I, I'm interested, you know, what other ways do you see, do you, do you find ways in which your own work so you have this very physical labor of, of doing this restoration of these wood floors. Mm-hmm. How do you see that relating to the work that you do by day? Um, you work in the field of technology yeah. as I a mean, software engineer, which is very we, we actually call it I call it a data sanitation engineer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I prefer that term. A lot of my days is spent not just being fed data because it's a lot of things come out of the unexpectedness. The, I mean, this is, you happen to hit me in a, in a particular day where I found a ton of unexpected data, <laughs> but making, having understanding about the different types of data that flow through and come to me, either by exception handling for that data or, you know, having real discoveries about how the data comes to us as well, coming through the pipeline and then kind of, a lot of my, you know, a lot of the things I do is, is some data mining in that. And so going through that and finding new connections to in large data sets, different connections in terms of, you know, because if someone has this particular diagnosis, these are their, you know, their co-occurring conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and you find a lot of really interesting, very useful data that comes in there. Do you turn to like the the physical labor as a a relief from a day spent in the Absolutely. in the cerebral? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It is. I don't have to think about it. I mean, I have to. Be, you make a plan. You make a plan for lots of things. But then, yeah, there are just times you're just kind of going by feel. I feel that way about cooking. I like cooking for that reason. You're just kind of going by feel when you, you know, it's like you could measure temperature, but like the perfect, you know, the perfect firmness for a fish is really a matter of like, you know, when it hits back at you, when you touch it. Um, (laughs) And and there's a tactile kind of, and maybe that's because, and I'm not sure if it's because I'm naturally a sensualist. Um, I believe in like a world that I can touch and feel and understand. Or maybe it's because I spend so much time in my head that I need something that just responds mm-hmm. by feel and touch that doesn't have to tax the already overtaxed brain cells that do all the logic all day. So I just need to get out of my head for a second. Yeah. It, it sounds – now I'm guessing then that are you a, the type of person that cooks without a recipe? and Almost always. Yeah, because I, I think it, it's kind of interesting. You know, it's like a recipe is basically a program, and yet... It's chemistry. It's chemistry, yeah. right? We follow this, and we, yeah. you know, we make this thing happen. But I think what you allude to is it turns out that every fish is entirely different. <laughs> every one. Every single one is different, and every single dish that you work on ends up being a little different. Every single oven 
element works differently, or if you have a gas stove, you know, the burners all burn slightly differently. Mm -hmm. Every, every plant is different. Every, you know, every hot pepper is not quite the same strength or we, you know, it's, mm -hmm. and I tend to, I function that way because I spend so much time because you can't, can't control everything for crying out loud. So there's gotta be a point where you step back and mm. you, you know, you can actually, you know, there, I, I kind of go by guidelines but yeah, I'm not really, I'm not a chemist when it comes to my food. Kind of sort of chemist when it comes to the floors, though. <laughs> kind of sort of. In terms of like how much, you know, if someone's been taking poor care of something, if someone's been putting like, um, think you, there are like restorative products that you can put on floors that make it shiny for like 10 minutes before it just gets marked up and dirty and crap. Yeah. Figuring out exactly like how strong do I, you know, how strong do I need to make something to strip this off? What's the combination? between like agitating it off and you know letting something dwell on it that takes a little bit of thought but not a ton i mean just mm -hmm. you know that's a that's also i've done it enough times i'm like okay i can do this but um yeah so it, it in a way it's maybe it's not exactly chemistry as much as it's you you move into something that's more automatic less yeah less dictated by like logic and a conscious effort to do something but closer in many respects to how one might paint or how one yeah. might compose poetry, perhaps. Exactly. It's more, it's an experiential kind of thing. It mm -hmm. should be something that, and it's also something I enjoy doing, which is not necessarily what my job is every day. <laughs> and, um, on this point, I hardly commiserate. I have been there. <laughs> yeah. Different fields of programming and and, uh, and data, but it's it's a similar slog. And uh, yes, some days it just is. Some days are just brutal, and uh, you're grateful to to leave. I, I had a a colleague who um, who after the workday was done would go home to an apartment where there was no computer, and she raised rabbits and she rang bells in a um, in a church choir. Wow. <laughs> and she was like that. She says, I don't want to deal with technology when I come home. I just want to be completely, you know, analog, just be in the world and sort of relate to the things, not machines. Yeah. Um, I do not know what's wrong with my dog. I'm very sorry. <laughs> Losing his mind. I have friends of mine who, who like raise chickens. Mm-hmm. I, I have friends who um, do those elaborate board games. You know, those like, um, I forget the name of that game. It's like really big in like the 90s. Uh, um, are you talking like, about like, Settlers of Catan? No, oh, Warhammer for Warhammer. 40K. Oh, yes. Yeah. So no, that, like big, they're old school. Big, gamers. big, big, um, you know, lots mm -hmm. of miniatures. It, it's basically uh, war gaming for, I mean, it's an even, I don't know which is geekier. <laughs> the the it's fantasy elements fantasy element of of wargaming or like just the tabletop wargaming which yeah, oddly enough I was, did have yeah. a childhood when I did I did briefly I was briefly involved with tabletop wargaming <laughs> I yeah I used to have soldier minis and like mm -hmm. as as this was this is a really sad confession <laughs> I at one point had a book on solo war gaming, so you could run your own battles Wait, against. Wait, you can yourself. do that by yourself. You can't do that, really. <laughs> the, 
there were dice rolls for it, and uh, yeah, so you could set up wow. elaborate battles between armies and and roll it out. That is embarrassing. That is, uh, that is <laughs> that's, yeah. true. So, hermit hermit mode was there, yeah. um, and then no, I absolutely. I graduated to something more social, and I, I became more involved in like uh, tabletop role playing games that actually involved talking to other people. You know, that's that's better. It's better. You're it's working better. Tw- you're working your way out of it. This is a lit fantastic. I'm your host Neil Aiken. For more information, check us out online at www.thelitfantastic.com. We're speaking to poet TJ Jarrett about her obsession with restoring hardwood floors and how this takes her to her larger obsession with the spaces and places in which we inhabit. Let's return to that conversation. It's amazing how many people I know in technology and the weird things that we do to get away from it. Yeah. Um, Because our entire lives are, you know, like, I had a dream, actually, this happened a couple, like, last Monday, Monday before last, I had this horrible dream that, it was a dream, I'm in the water, and there's a baby floating by in a basket in the water, it's crying, and I pick up the baby, and I ask the baby if it's okay, and it continues to cry, and I ask the baby its name, and it says its name is production, and I woke (laughs) up in a cold sweat, and my production server had gone down. No. (laughs) That's the kind, and I'm that dialed in. And so that was weird. That was, that was last Monday. And then on Saturday, my SE had took a nap and had something very similar happen to him. Um, it was, I don't know what that is, but yeah, you find yourself, you're so dialed into making certain that everyone's served, that you just need to like feed whatever it is in you that you can feed, um, that makes you happy. And if it's something that's relatively mindless, so be it. I have never had an allegorical dream about coding. I have had dreams where I did code. Um, Exactly. I have coded for like my entire dream and solved the problem I was working on at work only Uh to wake up and realize that none of that mattered because I'd done it in my dream and I had to go to work and actually write all that code now. I have had algorithm dreams where I'm thinking about how am I going to best build, you know, this particular object to pass data through. And I've definitely jumped about that. I, uh, I've had several where you're just dreaming in code, um, which is weird. It is weird. Which I guess it's like, it's, I guess it's kind of like the dreams where you're dreaming in French somehow, or you're dreaming in Spanish. And it happens to me. I, I'm really self-conscious about speaking languages, so I don't, the only time I feel free to make a grammatical mistake is if I'm dreaming. Mm. Yeah, Spanish, I'm proficient enough. I can like pick up whole books and read them, but I'm really so self-conscious that I rarely, I guess if I were dropped in a country, I guess I would, you know, if I went to Spain for a couple of weeks, I would finally break down and speak Spanish. But um, I mean, I have friends who speak Spanish. I don't speak Spanish too. So it's not, a, yeah, I'm just too self-conscious to do it, but I dream in it all the time. What's going so, on? Yeah, it's, it's totally possible, but mm. yes, it happens. <laughs> it's been a while. I think I haven't had as many dreams where I dream in language. I think after I learned Mandarin and my French was still floating around somewhere in the background, I kind of reached a point where I stopped dreaming in a particular language and it just 
was something unhinged from language. And I wouldn't think about what language was happening in the dream. There are times where I do feel that self-consciousness about speaking. Even when you know the language well, there are some times where you don't know, you don't always feel comfortable opening your mouth to speak it. Well, and speaking English, you're so, or you should be, really sensitive about idiomatic language. Mm-hmm. So I remember taking a Spanish exam. My professor was from Argentina, and so the use of the verb coger, which is to catch, is a very different thing um, in Argentina versus, I forget where this other woman was, but the verb was really in Spain, in like in Argentina, it was more like, I'm going to go catch the bus, and in, I forget where this one was from, it's more like to catch an STD to contract <laughs> so she looked at me with this look of horror as i'm talking to her and i'm like but i i just did i not say this correctly and she's like um okay i guess <laughs> yeah it's like you have to be very sensitive to mm-hmm. not just you know not just connotation yeah not just like the actual denoted language but the connotation is as well and that's where i fall flat because i don't you know i don't spend enough time with native speakers yeah and I just came back from I just came back from Denmark, and it's like it was a very, which I think is just a, it's a fascinating language in, first, in the first place. But having like you know read books and whatever, I never used it. It's Scandinavia. Everyone speaks English. Why did I even bother looking at it? <laughs> when I would listen to conversations, I, at some point I'm walking through the streets, and this woman stops. She's like, "Do you speak Danish?" And there's clearly there's an emergency, and I don't. And I'm like, "I'm very very sorry." And she goes somewhere else, and I felt so ashamed that I couldn't help her. Mm. And that just comes from a very human place of wanting to reach out and understand. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day I'll speak Danish too. I don't know. I doubt it. They don't have that many words though. Their words are very, uh, very terse language. Terse as in, you know, sentences are completed much more simply or um, vocabulary is more limited. You simply have a smaller pool of words very to draw. Limited. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, it, and it does not do what, you know, like that thing that German does where they compound and the compounding mm-hmm. may, you know, adds emphasis here and there. No, it's a very limited, like, you know, it's an interesting, yeah, it's a very interesting language. Yeah. It's very straightforward. I think it's deceptive. I don't really, I mean, I haven't spent enough time with it to know, like, it's true musicality or anything. So it's, it's interesting to me. So, so um, how many languages? Languages are built are interesting to me, obviously. Yeah, how many languages have you, you know, on some level encountered or tried to learn at different points? Uh, Speaking of human languages, as opposed to computer languages. Okay, human languages just probably English, Spanish, um, English, Spanish, French, German, and I guess the recent foray into Danish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a pretty straightforward, regular, normal. Computer languages is a whole different thing. That's just legion. That's pretty much people throw me a code and I kind of figure out, okay, is this, what is this? What language is this? Okay, let's work it out. Mm-hmm. It's got rules. Let's figure out what the rules are. How do I, you know, tons and tons and tons of computer languages that I probably are best forgot. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's like Delphi and whatever, Delphi, Fortran, Lisp, Ding, and yeah. the .NET. The .NET, you know, things, C, C++, you know, most of the things I work are, and now I work working, I work usually in SQL. I'm, I work in, you know, databases usually, so mm-hmm. I'm in, I'm in SQL 98% of the time, mm-hmm. even if I'm, you know, interfacing with some other language that captures that, mm-hmm. um, Java, whatever. So all of those things kind of come together, and, and you discover how you need to think systematically. 
I'm at the point in my career that I think outside the language that I'm working in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really thinking about what does the compiler do? Yeah. What are the interactions with the compiler? I've moved to this very different place about how I troubleshoot. I, you know, I troubleshoot on the layers. Where is where can this error be coming from? I think of it more on the systematic level than I do on this particular line of code. And that, and I can actually look at behavior, and sometimes I can watch the behavior of something running and go, oh, you know, it's probably here, and I'm right probably 60 to 70% of the time. I actually walked by a QA person once and asked why someone was throwing something into an array. And she just looked at me. She's like, how do you know? I'm like, that's just kind of the behavior. It's kind of stuttering right there. It probably shouldn't be doing that. They wouldn't mm-hmm. have all the data back if they called the database. And they, yeah, and they were, there they were, calling them, really, <laughs> throwing something into an array they shouldn't because it was more data than they anticipated. Yep. But I just, it's, having been around it long enough, I can tell. So it, it's interesting. It, it sounds like it's the, that familiarity with languages. With so many languages, you you start to think in this, it's a metalinguistics. It's a yeah, thinking you live, of, you live outside of it, yeah, I think. Absolutely. There's a interesting anecdote. I, I had a professor um, years ago when I was an undergraduate. I had a professor who was a professor of religion and ancient languages, and he... Huh he could read or speak 27 different languages. And he said, I, he said with such a deadpan face, we never knew if he was being like direct with us or if he was deliberately kind of pulling our leg. But he said like after the first six or seven, the rest start making sense. Wow. <laughs> but uh, I can kind of see his point because there's a point where you study yes. enough languages that you start to yeah. understand like basic strategies and and architectures and and not even that just sort of impulses like this language tries to do things this way this other language that you encounter you can see how it's been influenced by this earlier language and how it like contributes to some of the things that it does but at the same time it's clear that it's also been impacted this by this language i mean english is full of those artifacts of all the languages it's encountered and but it's 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 a language of dominion, really. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a Borg. You know, it's a mm-hmm. Borg language of of you know, it conquers and it assimilates, it appropriates, it transforms. Yeah. Um, sometimes it overwrites, and like you know, English is a virus, I guess. But well, sometimes it overwrites and writes back, where you yeah. have like you know, it's like people saying you know, computer computadora in Spanish, for example, which I'm sure there are probably better ways with the root languages that Spanish has to say computer, but it just kind of writes back um, you know, to other languages as well, which I think is interesting where you have these English cognates that come back to other languages. Yeah, I mean, Japanese borrows heavily from, from you know, English, and it simply just transliterates certain terms and, and makes it into, you know, something that sounds Japanese but is really, you know, just English through a filter. Mm-hmm. But Chinese has, you know, does some transliteration, but other things are so uniquely and cleverly their own. Um, I love, speaking of computers, in Chinese, when you want to refer, in Mandarin, if you want to refer to a computer, it's Dianao. It's an electric brain, Ah. which is beautiful. I was like, I love the idea that the computer is an electric brain, because it is. And (laughs) Yeah, it is, exactly. It's exactly what it is. 
yeah, so, source things that remembers things. Yes, absolutely. So I do think actually going back to this idea of like the first, you know, six or seven languages, they all become the same and you, you know, you know them all. I, I do think with software languages, absolutely. Yeah. Because they have about almost, not always, but almost about the same rules. They want to accomplish the same things. I have no problem learning different software languages at all. Yeah, most languages oh. most languages fall into one of like maybe four or five different models. You know, there there's like languages that look like C and C plus mm. plus, and then there are languages that look like Lisp and Scheme, and then there are languages yeah. that you know work in these other ways. But they're all kind of you know, they're all like once you recognize which model it falls under, you can probably figure out its basic workings fairly yeah, quickly. You, yeah, you'll you'll work it out. Like once you figure out, it's like okay, even down to okay, this is equivalence. All right, let's start with the equivalences, and then let's start with see exactly like this. This is an equivalence, and this is an, I mean you know, some kind of object or something acting on an object. Mm-hmm. And you can slowly work from there. This is a string operation, which kind of all languages work on strings of give or take kind of the same. They have their own syntax, but they pretty much, you know, parse strings about the same way. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm trying to think of things that have great departures for string parsing, and I don't do. Although I do have to say that I remember all the time spent doing problems that string parsing, when you're like, I don't believe we'll ever have to use this. I use that all the time. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Most of my time is probably spent transforming some string somehow. So I guess yeah. that's for people who are taking, you know, people who are taking CS. That that is, yeah, you did a lot of it because you're gonna do a lot of it. You're gonna do a lot of it. It's important. Um, it's it's really interesting to me actually that over time, I I having chosen you know the field that I work in, I somehow didn't think of the end game of like what would happen after about 20 years in a field. Mm-hmm. And knowing that you're like, oh, I got to learn something new. I guess that's why we work. And you just kind of roll with it mm-hmm. in a way that I don't know if other fields have the kind of volatility that our fields do and the kind of needs for us to keep up with every single change that has to happen. Yeah, I think it's most fields are move much more glacially. You know, it, it takes longer for changes to happen. There, there are some, actually, in terms of language, I think of something my mother once told me about Cantonese, which is, uh, Cantonese is an odd language because it's very much a street language, a language that is in constant use in business and in trade and on the street by everyday people in, in Hong Kong. So it's a language that is constantly evolving and responding to what's happening. And okay. so... My mother said that if she did not stay in conversation with people who had recently been in Hong Kong, within about seven years, her language would become not quite obsolete, but she would be out of touch with a lot of the... Yeah, it would be stale. It would not be current at all. So it didn't take more than about like five, five, six, seven years to, to kind of fall out. Whereas a lot of you know, once you learn, let's say, C++, it's not like C++ is going to radically change in seven years. What I will say is this, though. Approaches, um, data approaches, architectural approaches, I have been around long enough to watch the the large, um, the cycle go. And you mm. see an entire cycle 
where first, you know, we go from, you know, this whole sense of, all right, we're going to just write things to files mm. and then, okay, let's have an RDBMS to have atomic transactions. Um, <laughs> then what we need is one very, very large computer to run different sub schemes and you kind of slowly walk through the 70s and 80s and all of a sudden we're back to something called cloud computing, which is really, yeah, it's big. It's like, that's a big blue kind of idea. Like the fact that you have these sub processes that are all right back to one, mm. you know, one controlled kind of, yeah, you have that whole, there was a whole, like a, all the rage was client server computing for a while where you have, you know, these things that write back to a central place. And then we, yeah, you know, we also have on the other side of that, we also have this kind of no SQL movement, which never really works because you have to have, you know, atomic transactions. That's why we spent 40 years trying to get an <laughs> atomic transaction. But like you watch these things kind of go in cycles and what's, what's going to be, you know, the greatest fad in, you know, data architecture or application architecture that goes up and down. But I mean, I've learned kind of just to sit back in my pocket and watch what that's going to look like over time and really learn from my mistakes. I've gotten better only because I've made a lot of mistakes and then slowly kind of going, oh, yeah, that's pretty awful. That's probably a really bad idea because back in fill in the blank 1995, I did blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm turning to this old I'm not even that old, but I'm <laughs> turning to this old geezer. It's like back in my day, or I had like an old boss who was like, back in my day, we still had punch cards, you know. It's, yeah. It's a very strange field that kind of reveres youth, but it's not necessarily rewarded. <laughs> it's like in the same way. Like I think, yeah. youth, like that that sense of youth, and you know, we have this veneer of we need to have, you know, it's a young field when you really need veterans. I think that that is that is one of the ongoing you know, struggles within that field in terms of like who HR wants to hire. They want to hire the fresh face, Mm -hmm. you know, the worship, the sort of the vitality of the young, the innovation of the young, but forget that in most companies, they're dependent on systems that are old and architectures that are old and code that's old. That requires someone with a deep understanding of the history and the evolution in, in a sense. And this, this is maybe, a little bit awkwardly done, but it brings us back to the idea of restoring these hardwood floors at the beginning. Exactly. That there is a way in which you have to, you know, be familiar enough with the history that's present to recognize what is worth salvaging and what needs to be removed and what needs to be transformed so that it can be fully functional and beautiful again. I also kind of have this sense of being able to recognize them when you see them, recognize yeah. the tail of it when you see it. And it, because a lot of times, because there's this reverence for youth mm. um, in this field, you often, you know, veterans go. And so you have to look for these artifacts. Yeah. Um, particularly in code or like, you know, if you've been in a large development team, you can look at code and I could tell, I remember this one point I could tell immediately who wrote the code by just the style. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. just the indents. Sometimes they use the same algorithms every time, but I could tell just by the flavor. And that, that's, that's absolutely transitive to looking at a floor. What does this floor need? Oh, it looks like this thing has happened to it. Yeah. 
because you can just vaguely see like, oh, there's like a buildup over here. They probably have done these things. Let's try that first. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful to have this this conversation. It's always dare, great to dare, talk dare, dare I say your obsession floors me? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's been it's been wonderful, and it's been wonderful too to to delve into sort of the evolution in the history of programming, which was kind of a delight to walk back into. We would love to hear you read something. Uh, do you have maybe one or two poems that you could? I do. I do. I'll start with this one, and it's called The Burgomaster Said I Could Do Whatever I Wanted to You. And then added, I will turn my back and look away. But as you entered the room, shuffling and jangling your chains and smelling of day after day after day of yourself, I thought of forgiveness, which is to say, I thought of myself. I stood without a word to offer. And then I remembered fire and the fires we fled, the night after day after night in darkness, and the girl screaming her dying, the baby you left on the grass, crying and crying until it didn't, and then the growling of the dogs. And all the while you were silent and watching me as you'd always been. And as I turned to leave, I thought to myself, I can look away. I can choose to give you nothing. I can still save myself, save myself. And... The last poem I have, this poem I wrote, is predicated on the conditional. Mm. So it's called The Peonies at the Bodega. Were this a poem, and I were just arranging the sound, we would be standing in rain and not snow. I would have left intact, I would have left on foot, and I would have gathered my coat against weather. I would not hail a taxi. I would not raise my hand against the glasses of gesture against morning. And you would not be left standing alone near the hothouse flowers at the bodega near Hot Mott and Broom. When we made love that afternoon, we would have taken all our clothes off. You would have removed your left sock, for example. In the poem I would write, the woman in the street would not have noticed how much we loved or that we fairly glowed with it. Nor would they bustle by, cluck clucking and smiling knowingly. In the poem, you would have hailed the cab yourself, opened the door and then shut me up in it. I would have kept my eyes forward. I would not have watched you grow smaller and smaller through the rear window, and you would not have waved and waved and waved. In the poem, it would be near dusk, and there would be some kind of metaphor about how even the earth participates in the end of things. I mentioned the owner of the bodega were an old married couple, restocking the produce to guard against decay. I'd mention the flowers, and they would be peonies, and peonies would stand in for something else. Thank you so much, TJ, for being a part of this show. If people want to uh, learn, well, I guess, what's the, the best way that people can reach you? I'm Googleable under TJ Jarrett. Also, my um, I do have links, and I try to keep updated my most recent publications that are at least on the, on the web. Um, it's tjjarrett.com. I try to keep that as updated as possible. Thank you for having me, Neil. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Lit Fantastic. Our guest today was T.J. Jarrett, poet and software developer from Nashville, Tennessee, who is the author of two collections of poetry, Ain't No Grave from New Issues Press, 
and her most recent collection, Zion, published by Southern Illinois University Press and winner of the Crab Orchard Open Competition. For more information about TJ and her work, visit her online at www.tjjarrett.com. That's www.tjjarrett.com. You can find previous episodes of The Lit Fantastic on iTunes, SoundCloud, or on our website, www.thelitfantastic.com. They're also available on the kboo.fm archive. Until next time, I'm your host, Neil Aiken. Goodbye. Au revoir. Sayonara. Zai Jen. Arrivederci.